went, no, listening to British Birds, the True Crime Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases with an occasional glimpse at horror movies. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the sixth episode of season six. I hope you've had a chance to listen to last week's episode focusing on the crimes of German-born gamer David Heiss. Please go and check that episode out if you haven't already. Before we get into this week's story, let's break the ice a little bit as we always do. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this... Welcome to Daddy Facts. Here is this week's dad fact. Golf was banned in Scotland in 1457, 1471 and 1491 as it was thought it was distracting men from their military training. Certainly wouldn't distract me. I cannot stand golf. But then again, I hate sports that I am shit at. The second and final opening icebreaker segment of the show is this. Satsuji Haiku Here is this week's case-related murderous haiku. A two-time killer, a devil-worshipping man, evil incarnate. With my intro icebreakers complete, let's get into it. This case was suggested via email by listener Miller. It's sort of a two-part story this week with crimes taking place in the neighbouring counties of Gloucestershire and Worcestershire. Specifically, we're in Gloucestershire's county town of Gloucester, and the Worcestershire town of Redditch, located in southwest England and the West Midlands, respectively. I feel like I've said Worcestershire twice. Did I say Worcestershire? It's a hard word to say for some people. I believe it's Worcestershire and Worcester, but we're in Redditch. Not Worcestershire sauce. The sauce is nice, though, on cheese on toast. At this point, I would typically give you five quick-fire facts about the location of this week's episode, but seeing as though we're in two separate locations, I'm going to give you three for each. Here are your three quick-fire facts about Gloucester. Number one, aside from housing the burial place of King Edward II, one of only a few monarch tombs outside of London, Gloucester Cathedral hosted the coronation of King Henry III in 1216, who was nine years old at the time when he succeeded to the throne. Quite young for a king. Number two, Roman ruins can be found in the Eastgate Underground Viewing Chamber, showcasing remains of the city from when it was a Roman fortress, with the site including the base of a 13th century tower and a horse pool. Not sure what a horse pool is, but we can all use our imaginations. And number three, the Doomsday Book was planned in Gloucester when William the Conqueror held the Christmas court there in 1085 CE. He directed his men to visit shires across England to find out how the land was occupied. And let's move on to Redditch now. Here are your three quickfire facts. Number one, 90% of the world's needles used to be made in Redditch. Number two, during World War II, Redditch manufactured the Royal Enfield WDRE, better known as the Flying Flea. It was a lightweight motorcycle that could be dropped by parachute to quickly carry messages between air and ground troops in areas without radio communications. And number three, Headless Cross's famous US-style cloverleaf interchange is one of only three of its kind within the UK. I was kind of stretching for half-decent facts about Redditch, sorry if I've got any residents listening. 
As of the 2011 census, the estimated population of Gloucester was 121,000 and change, and the estimated population of Redditch was 84,214. Let me quickly advise you that this episode contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners, including graphic details of two murders, sexual assault, dismemberment, and devil worship. As always, listener discretion is advised. Our villain this week is Glyn Dix. Glyn spelled G-L-Y-N and Dix spelled D-I-X. Whilst researching this case, I was disappointed to find minimal information about his early life and background, other than the fact he was born in the town of Cheltenham in Gloucestershire in 1954. My understanding is that Glynn was the name he typically went by, but in some of the older newspapers I used to research this story, they did sometimes refer to him as Trevor or even John. His full name was Glynn Trevor John Dick, so I guess that kind of makes sense. Probably just a case of placing his given names in the wrong order. The timeline of our story begins in autumn 1979, a mere few months after the appointment of Britain's first female Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. Glynn lived in an end-terraced house on High Orchard Street, a quiet-looking back street close to Gloucester Docks in the middle of the city. He didn't own the house, rather he rented it with his then-partner Pamela Thomas from a married couple called James and Pia Overbury. James Overbury, known affectionately as Jim, was a local builder in his early 30s who was in the middle of setting up a property business with his wife Pia. Pia was a 32-year-old local shop worker and had the unenviable task of chasing up rent arrears from their lodgers, and Glyn Dix was the worst of the worst when it came to paying rent. Glyn wasn't someone who would just pay his rent late, or at worst miss a couple of payments. He went months and months without paying, and constantly made up reasons as to why he couldn't pay whenever Pia showed up to collect. Unfortunately, Pia's good heart and empathetic nature made her an easy target for Glyn Dix's manipulative ways. She believed every story he came up with as to why he couldn't pay the outstanding rent and continued to let his mispayments slide. Having worked in mortgage arrears myself, I can confirm that conversations involving outstanding payments can be some of the most awkward ever, so I understand how difficult it must have been for Pia, especially having to have those conversations in the flesh. I did it over the phone. Pia would sometimes take Maxine, one of her daughters, with her on visits to the property at High Orchard Street, and right away the youngster had a gut feeling that something was off with this man. Speaking in a documentary series titled When Life Means Life, Maxine recalled how on one occasion she had locked eyes with Glyn and he'd kind of given her a look so frighteningly evil that she felt he was giving her some kind of a non-verbal warning. Kids are born with natural protective instincts, and they don't miss much, believe me. It's just a shame so many of us lose that ability to recognise red flags as we transition into adulthood. One difficult aspect of this case is how many lies Glyn Dix told about the crimes he committed and the backgrounds behind them. For that reason, it's worth bearing in mind that some aspects of this story might have been fabricated, yet were reported as being the truthful chain of events. With that in mind, let me present to you a background of Glynn's relationship with Pia Overbury and a couple of key events leading up to one fateful day in October 1979. Remember, this is all according to Glynn, and as far as I'm aware, most, if not all of it, is bollocks. 
Glyn and his partner Pamela were good friends with both of the Overburys, but more so with Pyre. It's alleged that in September 1979, Pyre attempted to take her own life whilst in the company of Glyn and Pamela, but the pair managed to restrain her and prevent her from going through with it. Why would she want to do that, you might ask? Glyn said that Pyre was extremely unhappy with her marriage, and for six of her twelve married years to James, it had been a particularly stormy relationship. Pyre confided so much in Glyn that, one day, she asked if he could help her get rid of James for good. We're talking a mafia-style contract hit here. Pyre was sick to death of being battered and bruised by her husband, and she was willing to pay someone £2,000 to kill him. She wasn't asking Glyn to do it, though. She instead asked if he had any connections, or knew anyone who may be able to go through with it. Glyn replied by saying he knew just the man, Stephen Turner. Perhaps not wanting to carry the task out solo, Stephen then contacted a man by the name of John Clark, who also agreed to the hit. We now have two hitmen, ready and willing to carry out a hit for cash on James Overbury, as ordered by his wife Pia Overbury. So said Glyn Dix. September 17th, 1979. Glyn got in touch with Pia and explained that John Clark, one of the hitmen, wanted to discuss the terms of the contract with her, as there was something he wanted clarifying. Reminding Pia how covert the whole thing was, Glyn advised he had organised for the meet to happen in a nearby wood, as it was nice and secluded, and would allow privacy for all involved. What Pia wasn't aware of was that the whole thing was a ruse. Once in the wood, Glyn placed a blindfold on Pia and bound her hands to the trunk of a tree. He then said he was going to go and find John Clark and return with him to discuss the deal. It's not clear how Glyn managed this, but one thinks he maybe wanted Pia to believe she was not allowed to see John Clark's face, hence the blindfold. The tying her to a tree bit and by proxy the blindfold bit had far more terrifying reasoning behind it. Glyn returned to where Pia was, remember she's blindfolded, and sexually assaulted her before leaving the area and returning again presumably then removing her blindfold. Was his plan to make Pia believe it was John Clark who had just done this to her? That's the only thing I can think of as to why he walked off twice and came back again before finally taking her home. Frustratingly, the two unreliable hitmen ended up backing out of the deal on October 1st, 1979, which only left one logical option. Glynn would have to carry out the hit instead. The following day, October 2nd, 1979, Pia paid a visit to Glyn and Pamela during her lunch break. You can imagine Maxine's surprise when she popped into the shop her mum worked at that same lunchtime and discovered she wasn't there. Maxine and her friends would regularly visit her mum on lunch and she was always there. Back to Glyn's The Godfather style tale now. He said that shortly after Pia arrived at the house at High Orchard Street, he and Pamela got into an argument. About what? I'm not sure but seeing as Pyre and Glynn were supposedly discussing a murder contract, it's likely to have been about that. Glynn said that he then stormed out of the house and started walking down the road. Pyre quickly made her way outside, entered her blue Austin minivan and chased after him. It didn't take her long to catch him up, after all she was driving and he was walking, and after a brief conversation about the inner workings of guns, Glynn got in the minivan and they made their way back to his house. Pia had asked him to show her how guns worked and what they were capable of doing, damage-wise. So they returned to the house to retrieve a gun and some ammo, before heading back out to Carter's Grove, a woodland area in Gloucester. It's located about five miles north of High Orchard Street. Once there, 
Pyre turned her back to Glynn to place a twig on a tree, its purpose being to act as a target for the gun, but whilst doing so, Glynn shot her from behind and killed her instantly. During his initial statement, Glynn said, It flashed through my mind to put her out of her misery once and for all. One sharp crack and she was dead. She felt no pain. She did not know it was coming. He confessed to having then attempting to turn the gun on himself, but said he didn't have it in him to go through with it. Can we just take a second here to take in how ludicrous that entire chain of events is, please? It wouldn't surprise me if Stephen Turner and John Clark were made up by Glynn so that his story sounded somewhat more believable. When all of that came out in court after his arrest, Pyre's family felt he had fabricated the story for one reason, to make as many people hurt as he possibly could. Maxine said her parents loved each other very much, and James Overbury said, I thought the world of her. The picture that was painted of me in court and the real me are completely different. But let's Craig David for a second and break down exactly how Glyn Dix was caught. As I said earlier, 11-year-old Maxine Overbury was shocked to see that her mum wasn't at the shop when she visited her at lunchtime on October 2nd, 1979. She became more worried when her mum wasn't home after she returned from school later that day. That day was extra special because it was Maxine's sister's birthday, something Pia had made several plans for and wouldn't miss for the world. I believe Maxine's sister was named Sarah. James soon phoned the police and reported his wife as missing. The last place she'd been seen was in and around the shops on Southgate Street in Gloucester City Centre, half a mile away from the house at High Orchard Street. The next two weeks would be agony for the family as, despite many searches by police and friends of the local area, not a single trace of Pyre was found. It was as if she disappeared into the ether. On October 7th, 1979, five days after Pyre was reported missing, a discovery was made that led police officers to think their missing persons inquiry may soon turn into something more sinister. Pyre's minivan was found in the car park of Gloucester Railway Station. It had clearly been abandoned there due to a railway car park not exactly being a suspicious place to leave a car for a few days. Looking at a map of the car park, it's clear to see why it wasn't noticed. It's pretty big for a start, and it's out in the open, with likely many cars coming and going all the time. Despite having located Pyre's vehicle, there was still no sign of its owner. That would all change during one woman's routine dog walk on October 20th, 1979, 18 days after Pyre was reported as missing. Mary Redver, I believe that's how you say her name, was the dog walker in question, and she was in Carter's Grove with her two children and, naturally, their dog. Now approaching the end of their walk, the family were led off the beaten path through a thick area of woodland by Mary as she wanted to get home quickly and knew a shortcut. As the family headed for a nearby fence that they planned to hop over, Mary was confused when she saw a large pile of sticks placed on top of each other to form a sort of mound in the dirt. As she analysed it more closely, Mary saw a pair of legs protruding out of one side. It took her a second to realise what she'd discovered, but once the initial shock wore off, she did the responsible thing and contacted the police as soon as she could. She'll have likely had to continue her journey home to use her landline, as this part of the story predates mobile phones. Police officers soon arrived at the scene and sealed off the area within minutes. The badly decomposed body was then taken away and a post-mortem would later confirm the body belonged to Pia Overbury. She had been killed by a solitary gunshot from behind at point-blank range. Reports also suggest that Pia had been sexually assaulted prior to being shot, 
with some articles I read implying Glynn had used the same tactic as before by tying her to a tree first so she was completely defenceless. The sealed off crime scene was scoured and some key pieces of evidence were found. Firstly, Pyre's handbag was found near to where her body had been dumped. Secondly, a used gun cartridge case was found at the scene which would give the police an idea of the type of gun used in this execution style murder. Firearms experts confirmed it was a 410 bore, one of the smallest calibre gun shells available. The police had their first lead. All they needed to do now was to find out who the gun belonged to. Whilst the firearms experts looked into that, police officers started conducting door-to-door interviews with every known associate of Pyatt Overbury, including her husband James. Seeing as he was one of her tenants, Glyn Dix was asked some routine questions before the police left him to carry on with his day. As far as they were concerned, Glyn wasn't a key suspect, but the behaviours he displayed after he was spoken to would ultimately lead to him being caught. Glyn suffered from a schizoaffective disorder, a mental condition where symptoms of both psychotic and mood disorders are present together. Symptoms include hallucinations and delusions, as well as manic and depressive symptoms similar to those experienced by individuals with bipolar disorder. Essentially, stress was a key trigger for Glyn Dix's symptoms, and the stress of being interviewed by police, even routinely, was enough to start a chain reaction of symptoms. The first thing Glyn did was swallow a large quantity of medicine tablets in an attempt to end his life via an overdose. His attempt failed, and he went on to make a full recovery at Gloucestershire Royal Hospital. Despite making a full physical recovery, Glyn's mental state was still extremely vulnerable. The hospital staff were so concerned that they sent him to Coney Hill Hospital, a psychiatric hospital in Gloucester that was opened from 1883 to December 31st, 1994. Glynn's concerning behaviour continued whilst at Coney Hill, and he was quickly bumped to the top of the key suspect list regarding the murder of Pyre Overbury. Key suspect or not, it meant nothing without evidence, so the police continued their searches of the areas surrounding Carter's Grove in the hopes of finding the murder weapon. Divers were sent out to search the nearby River Severn, but came up short. It ended up being the firearms experts who made the vital breakthrough and ultimately cracked the case. The shotgun cartridge case was traced to two men based in Hastings, an East Sussex town located 185 miles southwest of Gloucester. They were subsequently interviewed and asked where the gun was. Thinking logically, perhaps these two men were in fact Stephen Turner and John Clark? Conjecture, of course. However they were, the two men told police that the gun they were looking for was sold to a man in Gloucester. The man they were referring to was none other than Glyn Dix. A further interview with Glyn led to a swift admission of guilt. He was arrested on October 28, 1979, and he supposedly even led the police to where he discarded the murder weapon. It was at that point where Glyn told the arresting officers the story of the murder contract. Whilst in custody, he would go on to change his initial statement by explaining that Pyre had in fact begged him to kill her due to her ongoing unhappy marriage to James. PC Kim Pembridge said Glynn told her the following, She begged me to kill her, and I did it out of love for a friend. I do not want it that she was so tormented she wanted to die like this. That, according to Glynn, was how it had really happened. Despite admitting to having murdered Pyre when he was first arrested, it appears as if Glynn went on to plead not guilty by way of diminished responsibility, or at least that's how he intended to plead. 
Mr Justice Griffiths had prevented him from doing so, however, when he ruled the jury could not be asked to decide on diminished responsibility without medical evidence being called. Upon hearing that and taking advice from his defence counsel, Glyndix pleaded guilty to Pyer's murder at Bristol Crown Court on July 22, 1980, and he was handed a life sentence. That's the end of part one of this story, but don't worry, this isn't a two-part episode. Part two of this story, which I'll tell you right now, begins in 1997, 18 years after Glyn Dix was sent to prison for murdering Pyer Overbury. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. A fellow prisoner at the jail Glyn was serving his sentence at went by the name of Adam Langford. Adam was serving time for driving offences and was frequently visited by his mum, a lady named Hazel. One source said Hazel's surname was Holmes and other sources simply said she visited a family member rather than her son but I believe it was Adam who she was visiting. Hazel was born in Redditch and lived there alone. All I know is that she did have children, a total of six as far as I'm aware, but not much else is known about her background or previous relationships. At some point, Hazel and Glynn crossed paths while she was visiting the prison and the pair soon became an item. Hazel would write letters to Glynn and would return letters of his own, essentially making them pen pal lovers for better use of a term. Being the master manipulator he was, Glynn fed Hazel a series of lies that led her to not only fall for him harder, but she also believed that he was an innocent man who had been wrongfully imprisoned. He would later go on to explain to one of Hazel's daughters, Tracy, that once upon a time he was in what he referred to as the elite army. I assume he meant special forces. He said at the time of Pyre Overbury's murder, he'd been suddenly knocked unconscious and woke up with her body next to his. He also explained that there was a shotgun in his hand when he regained consciousness, but insisted that he'd been set up and had nothing to do with her murder. The man literally confessed to having murdered Pyre Overbury 18 years earlier, but Hazel and her poor family were not to know that despite their suspicions. One of Hazel's closest confidants was her brother Wayne Denver, who I believe is an Elvis impersonator based in Birmingham. That's an irrelevant fact, I just found it interesting. Wayne was concerned about the man Hazel had chosen and reminded her there were plenty more fish in the sea, but she was adamant that Glyn was the man for her. All Wayne could really say was that if she ever needed him, or if she was ever worried about Glyn, she was to contact him immediately and he'd be right over. In 1999, two years after Hazel met Glyn at the prison, the murderer was granted day release. He used the time to meet Hazel's family and introduce himself. Not concerned about being asked difficult questions surrounding his past, Glynn had an answer for everything, and a confident answer at that, and he put himself across as the perfect man for Hazel. Wayne's concerns grew after meeting Glynn in person, and said as much to his wife. He had a feeling Glynn had killed Pyre, and that he would kill again. He just hoped and prayed it wouldn't be Hazel. The relationship moved quickly after that, and Hazel announced her intentions to marry Glynn in November 1999. The wedding day took place on November 5th at the local registry office and the entire event was recorded on camera. Glynn obviously played his part of the dream husband to perfection. Fast forward two more years to 2001 and we get to the ultimate turning point in Hazel's story. For some reason, Glyn Dix was released from prison on a life license, which meant that he was free but he'd remain on parole for the rest of his life. Glynn moved into Hazel's Redditch home and for the next three years they lived in apparent bliss as any newly married couple would. 
Everything seemed to be going so well until one summer's day in June 2004. It was June 19th to be exact, and Adam Langford, the same son who Hazel visited in prison and essentially who she met Glyn through, was due to pay his mum a visit at her home that she now shared with his former inmate. Upon his arrival, Adam immediately knew something was wrong. The back gate that led onto Hazel's property was locked, something she never did because of all the grandkids coming and going as they pleased. Hazel's daughter Tracy, I think, was either with Adam at the time, or he might have called her and had her pop over because I think both of them were present when they phoned Hazel's house phone and Glyn answered. Shocked that someone was in, Glyn said he would pop outside and that they should jump over the gate. After making their way to the back door, Adam and Tracy opened it and were greeted with a sight that wouldn't have been out of place in a horror movie. Stood in the middle of the kitchen was a completely naked Glyn Dix. He was holding a knife that, along with his entire body, was covered in blood. On the now completely red floor was the body of Hazel Dix. It had been chopped up into 16 separate pieces. All Glyn could say was, We've had a slight argument. Showing zero remorse, Glyn remained stood there as Adam and Tracy phoned the police and the rest of the family to inform them what had happened. More cock and bull stories came out of Glyn's mouth after he was swiftly arrested. He said they had argued about what to watch on television. One of them wanted to watch football and the other wanted to watch wrestling. A voice in his head then told him to chop her body into multiple pieces because she, quote, liked the place to be clean. I've no idea what that's supposed to mean. Home Office pathologist Edmund Tapp was on call at the time and would later say that this was one of the most shocking cases he's ever worked on. I won't break down exactly how Glyn dismembered Hazel, I don't think it adds anything to the story other than shock value, but I will tell you that he did it by using a hacksaw. If you're wondering why he held a blood-soaked knife, it's because he had violently stabbed her several times, which I believe is what caused her death. Admitting murder once more, Glyn was quickly placed back in custody and refused to give any logical motive behind the killing. That left Hazel's family to turn themselves into amateur detectives. What they discovered was truly shocking and some of the darkest shit I've researched to date. Let us firstly start with the day on which Hazel was murdered, June 19th. It was two days before the 2004 summer solstice, the year's longest day. It's a day associated with Stonehenge, a World Heritage Site and Prehistoric Monument located in Wiltshire, southwest England. It's also a day historically associated with both paganism and human sacrifice. Not much to go on so far, admittedly, but the plot thickened. There were several lit candles around the kitchen where Glyn had killed and dismembered Hazel. Glyn had painted a huge mural of Stonehenge on one of the bedroom's walls that took him around three years to finish. He was a frequent visitor to the mysterious site, and upon closer inspection, you can see a load of white druids standing between the stones on the mural. More concerning is the amount of time it took Glyn to finish the mural. He started it after being released from prison, and finished it a couple of days before killing Hazel. Another mural, this time a ginormous fire-breathing dragon, was painted on one of the kitchen walls. Not exactly home decor 101. Here's the thing that Hazel's family believed tied everything together though. It was an envelope with the words Revelations 13 verse 18 written on it. Revelations 13 contains two stories, the beast out of the sea and the beast out of the earth. The first story is about a beast with ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns. 
A dragon stands on the shore of the sea and is worshipped because he had given authority to the beast. Fire-breathing dragon mural, anyone? The second story is about a second beast seen coming out of the earth. This beast had two horns like a lamb but spoke like a dragon. Verse 18, the specific one mentioned on the letter found at the house and the last verse of the revelation states the following. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. I'm sure that's the start of an Iron Maiden song. Probably number of the beast. For any enthusiasts out there, by the way, I'm using the new international version of the Bible to tell that little part of the story. Glim was suspected of being a devil worshipper who murdered Hazel as part of a human sacrifice close to the pagan holiday of Litha, aka the summer solstice. A picture was also found of Glynn making an upside down devil horn hand gesture, basically the, the heavy metal rock on sign, but with the fingers and horns pointing down. After killing Hazel, he removed the two middle fingers of her hands to ensure she was making the same gesture. Another line from Revelations 13 states, The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies, and to exercise its authority for 42 months. A documentary I watched claimed it had been exactly 42 months from when Glynn was released from prison and started painting the Stone Edge mural to when he killed Hazel after finishing the mural. I'm not sure if they or I did the maths wrong, but I make it slightly less than 42 months. Glynn was released in 2001, but no precise date was given. Regardless, this was clearly a mercilessly premeditated murder by a man so cold and calculated that he was prepared to wait three and a half years to accomplish his goal. That, dear listener, is absolutely terrifying. On December 16th, 2005, Glyndix was handed a whole life order and transferred to Ashworth Hospital, a high-security psychiatric hospital in Liverpool. After the sentencing, Hazel's brother Wayne Denver said, We have all lost a sister, mother, grandmother and a very dear friend. No words can describe the devastation this family feels about a man who gave a persona of a quiet, loving, caring person. We were all taken in by his deceit. The story isn't even over yet. There's a few more crucial things I need to tell you. Firstly, Glyn Dix passed away on January 1st, 2014, while serving out his sentence at Ashworth Hospital. I couldn't find his cause of death anywhere, but he was 60 years old. Secondly, two years after Glyn died, Hazel's son Adam Langford passed away at the young age of 39. Hazel's family truly believe he died of a broken heart due to the stress of having seen his mum's dismembered body on the kitchen floor of her home. And finally, Hazel's family decided to send a letter to Glyn Dix in 2020 to find out why he had killed their beloved mum and grandma 16 years earlier. They had no idea he'd been dead six years by the time they sent the letter. They were never informed of Hazel's killer's death. It's only when their letter was returned to them by the prison authorities with a mark on it that simply said, no longer here, that they realised he'd passed away. Hazel's granddaughter Lynette said, They blamed data protection issues for the delay when they finally told us in a phone call. We wanted him dead years ago, but I've been denied the closure we desperately wanted. I lived with him and my nan for a time, and always thought they were a loving, affectionate couple. Then he killed her in a way which has given us nightmares ever since. He never explained why he did it, and it's a blessing that he's gone but it's disgraceful that the authorities didn't bother to tell us sooner. I just hope my nan managed to get her hands on him before he went to hell. The Ministry of Justice would attempt to defend their actions by claiming Hazel's family had moved home, so they had no way of contacting them. A spokesman said, 
Every effort was made to contact Hazel Dix's family, but this was unsuccessful. We regret any pain this has caused. And that was the story of British murderer Glyn Dix. Thanks again to Miller for suggesting that case. Let me know your thoughts in the YouTube comments or on social media. It's so frustrating that Glyn was released from prison after being sent down for murdering Pia Overbury. I've got two new reviews to read out this week. Thank you firstly Apple Podcast user Michael Luff for leaving British Murders a 5 star review. Michael said, Been a big true crime fan for years and this has become my favourite pod to listen to on the subject. Great to hear about lesser known murders and the easygoing nature of the pod makes me feel like I'm sat discussing it over a beer. Keep up the good work. And thank you Apple Podcast user AlexRa24 for leaving British Murders a 5 star review. Alex said, This is easily my favourite podcast. The icebreakers before each story are a great addition. I lived in the UK for a year, so find it especially interesting to hear the background info on the cities in each episode. He has a great way of making the show entertaining, but also stays respectful to the tragedies that have happened. Much love from Cincinnati, Ohio. A case that would be interesting to cover is murderess Marianne Cotton from the 1870s. I have added that case to my spreadsheet now, so thank you for that, Alex. And cheers for you both for leaving me those lovely reviews. Suppose you'd like to leave a review of the show? You can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser or BritishMurders.com. You can also leave ratings on Spotify. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or leave a one-off donation via BuyMeACoffee.com, you can find the links for each on my website. Thank you to Zippy, who has recently joined the show's Patreon. Cheers and welcome, Zippy. And as I mentioned in my email the other day, I've added your case suggestion to my episode spreadsheet as well. Please continue emailing your case suggestions to me, britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com, or just message me on social media. You'll not only get the episode covered, but you'll also get a cheeky shout-out. And finally, shout-out to Bryony Daniels on Instagram, who bought a British Murders hoodie, and it looks absolutely fantastic. If you want to buy some merchandise, you can find that over at britishmurders.com. All the stuff comes with Cheerio and the logo and all that stuff. To be fair, the hoodie, comfy af. Comfy af. I'll stop plugging the merch now. I don't make money off the merch, by the way. It's just so that you guys can enjoy wearing my memorabilia, paraphernalia, whatever you want to call it. Let's leave it there for now. (laughs) That's it for another episode of British Murders. I've been Stuart Blues. This, of course, has been British Murders. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio. Cheerio.